Good morning. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, where we've resumed our study throughout the Gospel of Matthew, having taken a brief hiatus this summer as we've gone through uh, and studied the book of Haggai. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a question to consider. What does it look like to be sent on a mission? What's involved in that sending? What do you need to be able to accomplish a mission? We could probably come up with a number of different things. They're going to, the more specific we get, the more specific it is related to the mission itself. But in the big picture, in the broad scheme of things, first you need a calling or a goal that you're trying to accomplish with the mission. Second, it's helpful to have a set of instructions, especially if someone else is sending you on this mission, to make sure you do it the way that they were expecting. Thirdly, you need to be equipped or empowered to complete the mission. Well, every true disciple of Jesus Christ has received a calling and they have been given a ministry. Every one of us. If you call yourself a true disciple of Jesus Christ, if you have, as we sing this morning, able to, at the, near the end of that stanza, I've been able to say, my holy God, this morning, then you have received a calling and you've been given a ministry, you've been given a mission. Whether you're a mother, a father, a teacher, a nurse, a businessman, a businesswoman, a missionary, in each of those cases, God has called you to minister. Additionally, he's given us his word. He's provided the church for training and instruction and encouragement and how we are to be faithful ministers and disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, we're going to see the calling, the sending, the instructions, and the empowering, which went into the first mission of these 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. And it serves as a reminder to us this morning of the calling and the instruction and the empowering that every true disciple of Jesus Christ has. So if you haven't turned there yet, you can open your Bibles, and we're going to begin reading. And I'm going to go ahead and back up to verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 8 of chapter 10. And you may remember the context for this from our study last week. Jesus, having looked out to those Galilean Jews and felt such deep compassion, moved in his spirit because they were like sheep without a shepherd, distressed and dispirited, and he called upon the disciples to pray. And here we read the answer to the Lord's Prayer. Jesus summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of sickness and every kind of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopards, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Last week we observed the answer to the disciples' prayers. 
begun out of the compassion of Christ toward the lost people of Israel there at the end of chapter 9. And it's out of that compassion and the prayers of the disciples of God, that larger group of disciples, some probably 70 plus, could have been upwards of 100. Out of those prayers, God answered and Christ called together these 12 specific disciples, those that are named in verses 2 through 4. And he commissioned them. He gave them the title of apostles. Matthew actually doesn't reuse the term apostles throughout the rest of his gospel, though it becomes a common reference and common term for these 12, the faithful 11. You are likely familiar with Judas and his end. Throughout Acts and much of the New Testament. And he commissioned them with a specific ministry and a specific authority that was unique from the other disciples in order to accomplish this mission. And we noted this last week, and it's important that we continue to remind ourselves of this and bear this in mind as we study and observe the ministry of these apostles. We need to remember the uniqueness of their ministry. We need to be careful not to seek application from the direct instructions of the twelve, just like the other seventy didn't expect to follow those explicit instructions. We should instead be looking to observe the larger implications from the ministry. Certainly there's things to learn that help to inform our knowledge of God, of His sending, of His power, of His authority. We learn much about these disciples, these specific twelve who are called apostles. But when we begin to look at how does this apply to our lives, it is important to understand and remember the uniqueness of their ministry. We want to be careful not to try to seek application that is specific to them but rather to observe the larger implications of these 12 apostles and the ministry they're sending, they're calling, they're empowering, their preparation as we look how we grow and apply this teaching to our lives today. In fact, this morning we're going to seek to do that. As we look at the calling, the instruction, and that empowering that takes place. And we'll look and see, do we have a similar calling? Have we been given instructions? And have we been empowered to accomplish this mission that I've already said we've all been called to? And if so, what does that empowering look like? Well, we saw the summary of the calling and mission of these apostles last week with the identification of them. And this week, we observe as Matthew provides the instructions Jesus provides before he sends these 12 apostles out. Verses 5 through 6 provide the description of the calling and some specifics about the geographical limitations of that calling. Five times in verses 5 through 8, Jesus uses the term send, go, or enter, either negatively or positively, as in go here, don't go there. And we discussed last week how the term apostle itself refers to one who is sent out. These apostles were sent out with that special delegated authority. It was the special authority, ministry, and message that, in fact, sets them apart from the other disciples and from us today. Now, the practice of sending someone with delegated authority was not an uncommon practice. In fact, it was very common. This wasn't the first time persons had been sent out with a delegated authority, as an apostle, as it were, one who was sent out. Perhaps it wasn't common to send 12 out at a time, but it was common to send someone on your behalf as an ambassador, as someone acting on your behalf. In the ancient world, it was, in fact, stated that a person's agent, when they went on this mission, was equivalent to the person themselves. And while the representative bore this authority and 
carried themselves as the very person they represented, it's interesting to note that someone as far down the social ladder as a slave could go out on this mission and bear that same authority as his master. And while they, as long as they functioned in that capacity as that ambassador or the one sent out, they were to be treated with the same degree of respect as the sender themselves. In fact, in the ancient world, it became somewhat ubiquitous or understood that how one treats the representative was an indication of their thoughts and attitudes towards the one who sent them to begin with. In fact, if we think about Jesus, uh, God's ministry in the Old Testament through his sending of the prophets, you also recognize this, especially when you think about how the prophets themselves were treated. These are the ones God had sent beforehand, sent as his messengers, as his ambassadors. And the treatment of the prophets by the Israelites was an indication of their attitude toward God. They rejected the prophets because they rejected God. They harshly treated the prophets because they harshly treated God. They had disdain for the worship of Him. They had treaded down the places of worship. They made a mockery of the temple. As one commentator notes regarding this passage, how one treats Jesus' messengers or heralds therefore represents how one treats Jesus Himself. Similarly, mistreating a person's envoy was the epitome of treachery, warranting severe punishment. Now, all of this has an important bearing on the ministry of the apostles, and it also has some bearing on how we, or any who go out as Jesus' ambassadors, thinks and acts. And while we don't share the same authority or the specific mission of these twelve, Paul does say in 2 Corinthians 5 that every believer is an ambassador. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 17 of chapter 5, Paul, writing to these Corinthians, says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As Jesus' ambassadors, we represent Christ in all that we say and all that we do. And that itself has a number of implications. For one, we need to be careful to ensure that we are accurately representing the one who sent us. The attitude or the piety of one sent as an ambassador was a matter of discussion in the ancient world. It was expected that one who sent carried themselves with the decorum, the seriousness that matched their mission and the authority they represented. And it's the same ex expectation that you would have had for the apostles as they were sent out from Christ. And as ambassadors, as Paul calls us, it's the same expectation for us as well. That we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. That we live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. That we carry out our mission, adorning the doctrine of God, adorning God himself in every respect, in whatever place he has called us. But there's also comfort in this recognition that the ambassador, 
the way the ambassador is treated is a reflection of the way they treat the one sending them. Because if we are rightly representing Christ, then the response persons have, whether it was to the apostles in the ancient world or whether it's to us today, is more likely an indication of their attitude toward God than their attitude toward us. And we need to bear that in mind and remember that. That's why as long as we are obedient in our behavior so that those of the world have no real standing for hatred of us, the response of the world to the preaching of Christ should neither surprise us nor upset us. John, one of the apostles, writes in John 15, verse 18, saying, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, it's because of this that the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who has sent me. This is a somewhat encouraging reminder. It doesn't remove the sting of slander or persecution that may come for Christ's sake. But it is a comforting reminder that the world's animosity, the hatred, the slander, all of that persecution is most often an indication not of its attitude toward believers, but an attitude towards God and Christ Jesus. As we talked about last week, this should move us toward compassion, not anger or hatred. However, this doesn't let us off the hook to behave however we want. It is important that we return to that first point that as ambassadors and representatives, we guard our words, our attitudes, and our actions. And that becomes particularly important when there is persecution of any sort, however light, however heavy. Because it's in those times of when you feel persecuted, when you feel slandered, when you feel attacked, either specifically or even generically, that you are most prone towards sin. You're most prone towards being angry. You're most prone towards hatred. You're most prone towards becoming bitter. And we need to remind ourselves that the hatred is aimed at Christ. It's aimed at God, and as we talked about last week, we need to remember what that means for the person or the persons doing this. And let that realization sink in to move us to compassion, to a sense of sorrow over their hatred, over their sin, over their response. Our response is to faithfully preach the gospel and to live our lives and conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's not to control the response persons have, but to let those responses move us to compassion. Well, the second half of verses, of verse 5 and verse 6, 6 here for the apostles, as part of the call, sets the geographical limits of this initial calling and sending that Jesus does. You see, this is not going to be the first time or the only time Jesus sends these apostles out on a mission. You're probably most familiar with the one at the end of Matthew, where he sends them out into all the world, or the beginning of Acts, in Acts 1.8, where began locally and then go out to all the world. He sent these apostles out several times on several different missions. Sometimes it was just the twelve, sometimes it was just three of them. Sometimes it was the twelve plus the other disciples. But in this particular mission, he sets a limit to how far they are to travel. While some have read these verses as anti-Gentile or somehow racist, nothing could be further from the truth. These limitations are much more geographical than they are ethnic. 
And you say, well, how can you say that? It says the word Gentile, it says the word Jew, it says Samaritan. How, how do why do I say that? Well, if you notice, it says not Gentiles. Don't go to the Gentiles. It says what? Don't go the way of the Gentiles. That's don't follow the roads leading to Gentile territories. Because Galilee, to the north, to the west, and to the east, was surrounded by Gentile lands. Limit your ministry to Galilee. Well, what was to the south? Well, Judea was ultimately to the south, but before you got to Judea, you had to pass through Samaria. So the Samaria was to the south. The Gentile lands were to the east, the west, and the north. What Jesus was doing was limiting the geographical location of their ministry to Galilee. This makes perfect sense. Since at the end of chapter 9, where was he ministering when he felt such compassion over the people? He was ministering to the Jews in Galilee. With these geographical limitations, he has limited the scope of the ministry here to Galilee and has excluded not only Gentiles and Samarians, but even the Jews down in Judea from this initial ministry. Now, having said this, one might still argue that this was still a has an ethnic focus, since he then says to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and to Israel, Israelites living in Galilee. And while, okay, maybe that's not racist, it still significantly limits any potential ministry to Gentiles and Samaritans. Why not just say, stay in Galilee? Did Jesus just secretly hate Gentiles and Samaritans like so many other Jews of his day? Why would he say this? Well, to kind of set your mind at ease, all you got to do is look down at verses 17 and 18. At least to answer the question of, does Jesus not care about the Gentiles and the Samaritans? There, Jesus specifically mentions the testimony that these apostles will have to governors, to kings, and to Gentiles. You know, in John 4, the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. There's numerous examples of Jesus ministering to Gentiles and to Samaritans. In fact, one of his very first ministries was to the Gentiles when he went, or went across the lake that we studied. So Jesus is in no way trying to hide the gospel or the promise of the kingdom from non-Jews. We need to again remember the context. Remember the reason for this initial mission and sending. It was compassion. That's, that's why he was motivated. It was compassion specifically for the lostness of the people of Israel, whom he said were like distressed and dispirited sheep, specifically the ones he's ministering to here in Galilee. It's not that Jesus did not care for the Gentiles or the Samaritans or the Jews throughout the rest of Judea or the rest of the world, but they were not the immediate mission and the reason for the prayers, the compassion, the calling, and the sending of this particular ministry. When a missionary goes to India, we do not say they hate those in Europe. If a missionary goes to South America, we don't say they hate those in Africa, Asia, and Australia. Jesus here is calling these apostles to a specific mission in time. He'll give them more, more missions. He'll give them broader missions later on. But right now, there is a specificity to this mission. In fact, in those later missions, Jesus will expand the peoples and the nations to whom they minister. In fact, we saw the extent of that last week, didn't we? As we discussed how many nations and how far the ministry of these apostles went throughout the world. Beyond even the confines of the Roman Empire. But for now, this ministry, which by the way probably only lasted a few weeks, was to the lost 
sheep of Israel, specifically those Israelites living in Galilee. It's also important to remember that there is a purpose to this being the focus. That's why Jesus came first to the Israelites. They were always to be a light to the nations. And that means the means through which God would manifest His glory to the world. And it was necessary, therefore, to reveal Himself to Israel so that one, in their rejection, which John describes in the beginning of John, in the Gospel of John, that it would be obvious. And that then the focus would turn to Gentiles. And secondly, when He does save and ultimately does use Israel, it will be clear evidence of His power and His glory. Because He has given them every opportunity to see Himself manifested in their midst. And we can't forget the promise going all the way back to Abraham that it was through Israel that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so the focus was rightly on Israel first because that would be the catalyst for blessing the entire world. To go anywhere else would have been to go against God's prescribed plan. God's plan specifically for the whole world. It had to start somewhere. In fact, it's because of the promise to Abraham and Israel in the Old Testament that there was an expectation that Jesus would be the Savior of the whole world. That's why Jesus tells the Samaritan woman in John 4.22 that salvation is from the Jews while offering it to her. As Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Notice there is no exclusion. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, Christianity must not be separated from its Old Testament and Israelite foundation. We cannot, as one church leader suggests, unhitch the Old Testament from the New. To do so eliminates the basis and the foundation for the blessing to the Gentile nations, which, looking around, seems to be you and me. Paul instructs us to not grow arrogant toward Israel, but to remember that we were grafted into true Israel and we become partakers of many of the blessings and promises to Israel, but there yet remains a distinction between Israel and the church because of the plan to bless the whole world. There's one final very practical note on the geographical limits. This first mission likely lasted, as I said, only a few weeks. By telling the twelve apostles to remain in Galilee, Jesus was ensuring that they didn't go too far away. You see, he wasn't done with their training and instructing, and he had more to teach them. If he had started out by just sending them out into the world, into the uttermost parts of the world, that training would have been cut short. So Jesus keeps them close in order that the training would continue, even while they were ministering and going out. Now, how does this, this calling, this provision, this description of geographical focus of the ministry, how does that apply to us today? How does it affect our calling as disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, first, as we've noted before, and we'll say it again, I'm sure many more times, every true disciple of Jesus Christ is called to full-time ministry. There is no exception. The question is, where has God called you to minister? Well, God has probably not audibly told you that you are to minister in Galilee. The answer to this question isn't as difficult or esoteric and as hard to answer as it may at first seem. You see, God's created within you and placed within you desires and affections. 
He's given you certain abilities and aptitudes. Perhaps it's what led you to work where you currently work, to have the friends that you currently have, the place you live, the spouse you married. None of these things are an accident. It's not to say we should just trust our feelings. But we also must not dismiss God's arranging of all things in our lives according to His will, including how He has created you, certain desires you have, certain gifts, certain abilities, certain likes, certain dislikes, all that have led you to the place you are today. And these may change a little bit over time. It's possible that you develop a strong desire for ministry in a particular area. Don't ignore that desire. Certainly pray over it. Ensure that you aren't involved in some presumptuous sin that clouds your judgment. But then pursue it. Pursue those desires. So the answer for where are you to minister right, Minister today is right where you are at. Start ministering. Be active where you're at. You'll be amazed at the doors that continue to open. Some directing you to new areas of ministry. Some expanding that current ministry. That's your calling. If you want to know where is the Lord called you, start with right where you're at. And then be open and be aware of new opportunities, new desires. Consider them, evaluate them, pray about them, talk to fellow believers about them, and then pursue them if you believe it will honor the Lord. Again, we've all been called to full-time ministry. And you've been called to exactly where the Lord has placed you. Well, having established the geographical limits to the first mission of the apostles, Jesus next instructs them on the nature of their ministry or the content of their ministry. Specifically, what are they to preach? What are they to say? Just like the prophets of the Old Testament, including Haggai, whom we studied this summer, they were not to speak of their own initiative. They've been given a specific message. Now, while there's much they may be able to say, I mean, they've only been with Christ a few months at this point, but there's already a tremendous amount that they could say. They are to limit the message to the proclamation of the nearness of the kingdom of God. In verse 7, we see the specificity of this message. It begins, though, by saying, as you go, it identifies and reminds us of the itinerant nature of the apostles' ministry. That is, they're to be constantly moving about. They're, they're not like the later pastors and elders of the churches who live and remain in the same place for much or all of their lives. As such, several of the specific requirements are unique to itinerant ministry, as we'll see in later weeks as he gets further into some of these details. And as they go, they are to preach. That's the nature of this ministry. This is a specific preaching ministry they're to engage in. And the message they are to preach, as it continues to get more specific, is the nearness of the kingdom of God. This had particular meaning to Jews and to Israelites. And we've seen this message before, haven't we? Already in our study of Matthew. We saw it in chapter 3 with John the Baptist's message. We're in chapter 3, verse 2. He's, He's out there preaching in the wilderness. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the same message Jesus preached at the start of His ministry in Matthew 4, 17. Where He says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And now Jesus repeats it in the message that the apostles are to proclaim to summarize the content of what it is they are to preach. You may consider these previous 
examples of the preaching and the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus, and noticeably absent is the command here for repentance found earlier. However, we need to remember Jesus is not providing the totality of what they are to speak. He's giving it a heading. In fact, Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then we had three chapters of what that message contained in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's likely that he preached many more sermons that expanded the content much further than that. And so this heading preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand is a heading for the content of which they are to preach, to provide hooks upon which they are to remember, okay, everything pertaining to the kingdom of God and its nearness, that is the focus and the content of our preaching and what we're to go out saying and the conversations we're to have. And this would have included what they had studied or what we've studied in the Sermon on the Mount and what they heard that day. It would have included other messages that they had heard. It would have included what many of these disciples had learned under John the Baptist. And central to all of these was the component of repentance. Likewise, they are to preach with urgency and express the, as they express the nearness of the kingdom of God. As we've noted Previously, this is not a proclamation that the kingdom of God has arrived, but rather it is near. Leon Morris notes that the kingdom is here in the words and the deeds, and yet the best is yet to be. The anointed king was in Israel proclaiming the message of repentance. He's now sent out his ambassadors to begin proclaiming the message of repentance in the nearness of the kingdom of God, but he has not yet ascended to the throne of David. We've noted the preaching of the kingdom of God and all that it entails, beginning with the Beatitudes. And by saying all that it entails, we've hit on the topics and the themes. We've by no means covered all the content. In summary, this message is the herald's cry. The message of the kingdom of God is a herald's cry. It announces that the mediatorial kingdom of God is at hand, near enough to begin to see and feel some of its effects, though it is not yet fully realized. Like the rays of the sun before it peaks over the horizon, it is near. It is warming the sky. It is breaking through the darkness, but the sun has not yet risen. So what does this instruction to preach the kingdom of God mean for us today? Certainly we should study and understand the kingdom of God, but how does that pertain to our ministry? Well, like the apostles, all disciples of Jesus Christ, us included, have been given instructions to preach and to teach. At the forefront, we are to proclaim the gospel, that is the good news of salvation. As we've already read in 2 Corinthians 5, we are to proclaim and preach the ministry of reconciliation, that is, God reconciling sinners to himself, putting to death the enmity through Christ that exists between God and sinner. That is the gospel, that is the good news. In 1 Corinthians 11, even in our regular practice of remembering the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, and observing the Lord's Supper, we are to continually proclaim His death until He comes. We could go just book by book, verse by verse, and see the content of what we as disciples of Jesus Christ have been instructed to preach and to teach. The church likewise has instructions, not just for the general preaching of the gospel, but also for the training and the edification of the saints for the building up of the body of Christ. We see this in Ephesians 4, in the appointment of elders and pastors over the church who instruct first through godly character and second by teaching Scripture 
explaining and giving understanding of the Old and New Testament so that we might better understand God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Then you get to Titus and it says, older men, be instructing and helping younger men. Older women, be instructing and helping younger women. You see, the teaching and the edification even in the church is not isolated merely to pastors and elders, although it begins there. All of us are to be teaching, to instructing mothers and fathers in your homes with your children, grandparents with your grandchildren, nephews and nieces, friends and neighbors, to be teaching, to instructing, to encourage one another. Part of this includes how we are to live. In other words, it's not just head knowledge, it's life knowledge. We've been given clear instructions on how to live in this world, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. That is, all unbelievers. So then the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So part of that instructing, that training, is in how we are to live and go about our daily lives. In other words, we're to go out preaching and teaching in the ministry that God has placed us, in the locale that God has put us, in the environment and the people that he's given us in our circle of influence to minister to, we are to be proclaiming through word and through deed. Well, the apostles are not only sent out with a message and just told to go do this, they're also empowered. They're equipped. Specifically, the apostles are empowered to demonstrate the nearness of the kingdom and the validity of their message through these miracles that we observe. By performing miracles associated with the kingdom of God that was taught throughout the Old Testament, was expected throughout the Old Testament, that we've already looked at in our study of Matthew, these miracles that Jesus performed was a reminder and validation that the kingdom of God was indeed at hand. It gives validity and authority to the message they are proclaiming. In the age to come, the mediatorial kingdom of God involves the overturning much of the curse of sin, which is sickness, death, sorrow. The eternal kingdom of God, which is the culmination of the age to come, will see the full and total reverse of the curse of sin. And so the disciples, as they preach the nearness of the kingdom of God, are thus empowered with authority from God and Jesus to demonstrate the nearness by healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing leopards and cast, lepers, and casting out demons, all of which are signs of the kingdom, of the overturning of the power of sin and its effect upon the world, which was one of the greatest expectations of the kingdom to come. These miracles were not just for show. They were specifically there to demonstrate the nearness of the kingdom. These are the king's ambassadors representatives of the Messiah that are now being sent out. Jesus thus delegates his authority and his power to them in performing these miracles. And even though generically or generally it was to validate the authority of their message, it was to show and illustrate visibly the nearness of the kingdom of God, there was another very, very important, central, crucial reason behind these miracles. Jesus tells us what that is. But he already did it. You have to go back to Matthew 9. In Matthew 9, verse 6, when Jesus heals the paralytic, 
He gives the reason for why he is performing this. He says, it's not just that he has authority generically. It's so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Notice at the heart of this is not just exciting persons as they understand and recognize the nearness of the kingdom of God. It is to remind them that the great hope, the real answer has come, the forgiveness of sins. That which provides true rest, eternal rest. These miracles and activities were signs of the arrival of the Messiah, who we read about this morning in Isaiah 53. Thus they were particularly important for Israel. There was a need for them at this time, these miracles at this time for this people to understand that there was forgiveness of sin offered. They needed to understand the forgiveness that was offered through the Messiah because they had been burdened by the rulers and by the rules and the laws of their religious leaders. So Jesus offered freedom and forgiveness, something only the Messiah could do. And in order to prove he is who he says he is, he performs kingdom miracles and delegates that same authority to these apostles. Now, I don't know about you, but I cannot instantaneously heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, or cast out demons. If you can, come see me afterwards. We've got a new ministry we need to talk about. That is not to say that God does not still work miraculously in the world today, but the authority to perform these things and dispense them certainly doesn't appear to exist today. And that's because we have a different mission than the apostles. And so the question becomes is, already, do we still, though, have an empowering for the ministry and the mission that we do have? What empowering do we have, if any? Well, the answer to that question is we absolutely have an empowering for our ministry and mission. So what is it? John answers that question in John 14, where he says, it's better that I go away. Why? So that the helper, the spirit can come. That is the empowering that every believer has received. And along with the gift of the spirit are specific gifts to the church for the edification of the body. Peter alludes to this empowering when he says in 1 Peter 4.10, As each one has received a special gift, and these are the gifts that are given by the Spirit, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What are these gifts that have been given? Well, Paul describes many of them. It's by no means an exhaustive list, but he describes many of them in 1 Corinthians 12, where he begins by saying, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. In other words, be aware that you've been given these gifts to empower you for ministry. And he goes on to provide a list of many of the gifts at work in the church. Paul says in Romans 12:6, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each one of us is to exercise them accordingly. In other words, don't just try to be like the other person. Recognize that not only have you been empowered with gifts, but your gifts are different from others because your ministry is different. There's different people that you are able to influence than I can influence. There are different conversations you can have that I can't have. There's different ways you can help others that I can't help. And in Ephesians 4, 7, we read, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. These are not simply platitudes. These are assurances that God empowers through the Holy Spirit, His disciples, throughout all the ages, to accomplish their ministry. 
Without doing an exhaustive study of spiritual gifts this morning, we can summarize this by saying, if God has created within you a desire to serve, He has empowered you to do that as well. If you have a desire to evangelize and continually find yourself in conversations with unbelievers, God has empowered you with the gifts needed to accomplish this. Just to be clear, that doesn't get the rest of you off from evangelizing and sharing the gospel. But there are some who have a particular heartbeat who can't, they just find themselves, it's like no matter when they sit down, it's as if someone turns to them and says, what must I do to be saved? And God's empowered you to accomplish that. For some, you're more prone to generosity. You are perceptive to the needs of others. God has empowered you for this. But again, like all gifts, it doesn't mean that the rest of us get to be stingy. But there are some who have a unique ability to perceive the needs of others, to see them before they even ask. Or it's almost second nature. These promises and descriptions of the empowering of the Holy Spirit for the work of ministry are an encouragement to us as we look to faithfully fulfill our calling. We haven't been left to flounder about wondering if it's possible to do these things. Well, at the end of verse 8, having spoken of this empowering of the ministry that they're to be proclaiming, describing their calling and the focus of their mission, there's a final note, one that's expanded on in the verses to come. But it harkens back to the fact that, as we noted, the apostles were called to an itinerant mission. They were constantly moving about over these what are likely several weeks. But they weren't going to be the only itinerant laborers about. In the ancient world, you could find itinerant philosophers, actors, teachers, supposed miracle workers, most of whom were hucksters looking to profit off the backs of persons. Jesus, in this sending, wants to make it crystal clear that these apostles, these itinerant missionaries, are no charlatans. That they are there for the benefit of others, not themselves. And so he says at the end of verse 8, you have been freely given this empowering and the power to perform these miracles. Do not charge for your services. Do not demand or require payment when proclaiming this message and performing the miracles validating this ministry. doesn't mean you don't turn down generosity, but don't go about demanding it. Don't coerce it. In other words, like the charlatans of the day and like those that still exist now, don't demand or even request payment or money in order to dispense healing or blessing. By the way, this was the pattern of all true prophets and teachers throughout the going back into the Old Testament. We have the example of Elisha in 2 Kings. After healing the Syrian captain, that he's, he was told, refuse any payment. Refuse anything. In fact, it's his servant who tries to take payment who gets punished. This had been the, the pattern of those true itinerant missionaries and apostles to set them apart from those in the world, to set them apart from false prophets, false teachers, those who look to take advantage of others. It also is an opportunity for God to reveal his care and his provision which is particularly needed by these missionaries, by those with an itinerant ministry, where daily, weekly, hourly, there was a constant need to rely upon God. 
And so it began training them. It began building up those spiritual muscles, as it were, for preparing to be trained. We talked last week about what these apostles went through later in their lives and the sacrifices they made. They needed to begin building up those muscles now. In similar ways, God takes us through areas where we need to be trained and we need to, our spiritual muscles trained. That's what James talks about when he says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of any kind, knowing that the testing of your faith is for your endurance. And he's not talking about being able to hit the gym harder. He's talking about your spiritual endurance. Your ability to weather the storm, to be a testimony and a light in the midst of the storm so that when the storm comes, your light isn't blown out. These apostles are to trust God for their provision through the generosity of others, not cajole persons or promise an exchange of services if they will compensate them or pay them. We'll talk about this in more detail next week, but close with this final note on this. It is a clear demonstration of obedience and love for the Lord that believers give generously and freely. But we're not to go around demanding it or, co or coercing it. In fact, it's one of the reasons here at Canton Bible, you'll rarely hear us talk publicly about money, except where the preaching or teaching naturally flows into that section. Rather, our posture is to make needs known when they arise, let you know of ministry desires, and inform you of these things, and then trust the Lord in how he'll provide, that he'll work in your heart to be as generous as possible, not to coerce or manipulate or promise some exchange of services if you'll only give so much. As we look at the calling or sending of the apostles, the instructions for their ministry and the empowering they received, we, as is clearly here, we see a lot of implications for us today. Yes, we have a different ministry. Yes, our calling varies. Our geographical location is obviously different. But there are still tremendous implications and aspects from this ministry that are to be applied to our life today. And as we continue in the weeks to come to look in even more detail at this first missionary ministry of the apostles, we will continue to find encouragement to our own calling as disciples of Jesus Christ. I wanted to close by reading a prayer from the Valley of Vision that speaks of the ministry of believers. We'll close out our lesson with this. Thou God of my end, thou hast given me a fixed disposition to go forth and spend my life for thee. If it be thy, by thy will, let me proceed in it. If not, then revoke my intentions. All I want in life is such circumstances as may best enable me to serve thee in the world. To this end, I leave all my concerns in thy hand. But let me not be discouraged, for this hinders my spiritual fervency. Enable me to undertake some task for thee, for this refreshes and animates my soul, so that I could endure all hardships and labors and willingly suffer for thy name. But oh, what a death it is to strive and labor, to be always in a hurry and yet do nothing. Alas, time flies and I am of little use. Oh, that I would be a flame of fire in thy service, always burning out in one continual blaze. Fit me for singular usefulness in this world. Fit me to exult in distresses of every kind, if they but promote the advancement of thy kingdom. Fit me to quit all hopes of the world's friendship and give me a deeper sense of my sinfulness. Fit me to accept as just desert from thee any trial that may befall me. 
fit me to be totally resigned to the denial of pleasures I desire, and to be content to spend my time with thee. Fit me to pray, and with a sense of the joy of divine communion, to find all times happy seasons to my soul, to see my own nothingness, and wonder that I am allowed to serve thee. Fit me to enter the blessed world where no unclean thing is, and to know thee with me always. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder this morning from the sending and equipping of these 12 apostles. May we be faithful and take from this the desire to endeavor to to faithfully live out our ministry where you have taken us. Help us to be sensitive and aware of desires and directions you place upon us. Let us not snuff them out quickly. Father, help us to rightly prioritize our life to the full-time ministry you've called each of us to. Father, may we do all these things seeking into living in such a way that we may one day hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. In your name, amen.